Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The number of measles cases continues to grow in the U.S. This month, there have been more than 1,200 cases in 31 states, including Connecticut. The CDC says it's the greatest number of measles cases since 1992. Coming up, Connecticut public reporter Nicole Leonard joins us with an update just one week after Connecticut released vaccination data about public school students. First, an investigation by Hearst Connecticut Media looked into sexual harassment complaints in the workplace and found it's a pervasive problem. The series came out this month, the same month that a new state law went into effect to prevent harassment in the workplace and protect victims. Joining me now to tell us more about the series, Into Workplace Sexual Harassment and Abuse, is one of the reporters on the series, Caitlin Krasselt, who's a political reporter for Hearst Connecticut Media. Caitlin, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I want to also tell our listeners they can join on the, into the conversation as well. 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. As always, find us on Facebook and Twitter uh, at Where We Live. Uh, Caitlin, we know that uh, sexual harassment in the workplace uh, has really gotten a lot of attention in the last couple of years, specifically because of high-profile cases. Um, so I'm curious what made you look into this uh, on, on a local level. Yeah, so that was actually kind of the impetus for this series. We know all of these high-profile cases, cases, the Harvey Weinstein case um, in particular, kind of kicked off this Me Too movement in 2017. Uh, but we know that sexual harassment and abuse is not just limited to Hollywood and the halls of Congress. We know that it affects men and women every day in normal workplaces, um, and that often we don't hear those stories because they aren't high-profile people who the media would normally write about. So we wanted to understand how often this does happen and, you know, any sort of trends associated with that, what types of industries this might occur in, um, what size of workplace, you know, is it more common some places than others? And what we found is that there isn't really a trend. Um, As far as industries, yes, restaurant and hospitality had a little bit higher incidence rate just because of the nature of the work. Um, but for the most part, it's across all industries in all types of um, workplaces. And, and that was really what we wanted to understand and kind of put a face um, to something that we had a hunch was happening just because we knew anecdotally. Um, but we wanted to, to really understand it better. Uh, coming up, we're going to hear from the executive director of the Connecticut Commission on Human Rights and Opportunities, Tanya Hughes. Uh, this was a state agency that uh, Hearst Connecticut Media, that's where you got uh, your data looking into uh, complaints uh, filed against uh, employers. So uh, tell us a little bit about that process and how far back did you look? Uh, we f- uh, filed a freedom of information request in February. Uh, for the previous, uh, any complaint with the CHRO that had an allegation of sexual harassment going back five years. Um, We chose five years because it was just a nice round number. You kind of have to pick one. Um, And it happened to be that there were 100 complaints um, involving sexual harassment over the last five years. 
And this was a, a five-part series. Before we hear about some of the cases that you and your colleague Emily Munson uh, reported on, I am curious when we talk about sexual harassment and abuse, um, it can be uh, you know problematic to identify people who are uh, you know so-called victims of mm-hmm. this behavior, this uh, uh, these assaults. And so, uh, tell us a little bit more about the the process of of deciding uh, to identify some of of the women in these stories. Yeah, we went through a lot of kind of ethical discussions about this. Uh, all of their names are included in the CHRO complaint. So we know their names. Um, and, and anyone who chose to, you know, go through that freedom of information process could find them out. And a lot of them are in public court documents and that kind of thing. But most people don't go through that. And so we chose not to identify anyone um, that we didn't speak to directly. And we did offer um, anonymity to anyone who was willing to share their story with us. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, the first is that many of these cases uh, settle with a confidential settlement, and identifying them would jeopardize their settlement, the terms of their settlement agreement. Um, and another reason is that for some of these women, um, it would it would jeopardize their safety, and we don't want to do that either. And for others, um, we do know that women who come forward, they is a little there's a little black mark next to their name when they're looking for new employment and so um, they felt safer not being identified and then we also had a couple of women who were more than willing to be fully identified to use their full name and to use their you know let us photograph them and that kind of thing um, we also had a, a debate about naming the accused um, and that was something that was kind of interesting to work through with Emily and our editor John Ferraro the accused are also named in these documents. And so it's it's a fine line between determining, you know, there's a, there's a legal parameter and then there's also an ethical parameter in terms of, you know, is it fair to name them? Because anytime you Google them, they'll come up. Um, but we did, in a couple of instances, decide to name them. Those allegations were substantiated un, unrefutably and... Um, so we did name them, them as well. We're talking about uh, workplace sexual harassment and abuse. Again, Hearst Connecticut Media uh, reported on uh, a series this month, a five-part series. Uh, Caitlin Kresseld is one of the reporters on uh, that project, uh, looking into this issue across uh, the state of Connecticut. You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. So, uh, Caitlin, walk us through some of uh, the uh, stories that you profiled, these specific cases, one that really uh, stood out to me was a woman who was harassed who worked for the Connecticut Judicial Branch. Yeah, that story um, was just so particularly shocking to me. And not shocking in the way that I was surprised that it happened, but that I was surprised that it happened and the response was so inadequate within the Judicial Branch, which is the system ultimately that is designed to protect people. Um, so Lynn Mealy and her daughter, Jessica Bianco, both worked for the Connecticut Judicial Branch. And um, the Lynn was harassed for the better part of a decade. And when someone finally overheard her kind of try to stand up for herself, um, she f- finally told someone about what had been going on. And she had been receiving these just horrible text messages that were so inappropriate she never once, you know, responded in a way to make her employer think that they were appropriate, um, her supervisor. And um, 
So she finally did uh, file a complaint with Judicial Human Resources. And through a couple-month investigation, the Internal Human Resources Department for the Judicial Branch found without a doubt that there was quid pro quo sexual harassment, that he had solicited sexual favors in exchange for a promotion and had been sending her inappropriate text messages for years. And their response to that was to transfer him to another office um, where he, to this day, my understanding, is still employed. Mm. You said that these were uh, two women that both worked for the judicial branch. Do they no longer work for the state? Um, Lynn still works there in the same position, and her daughter, Jessica, um, who just happened to be transferred into the same office, it had nothing to do with the fact that they were related, um, she ended up leaving her position with the state because she didn't like going to work there anymore. Did you find that that is uh, common among the cases that uh, you looked at, that uh, people who are reporting harassment, uh, whatever nature it is, that they end up leaving and the accuser uh, or the accused ends up uh, still remaining in the, on the job? Yeah, absolutely. Whether it's by their own choice or not, uh, which we did find as well in 28 of the 100 cases that we looked at, the victim was terminated uh, for coming forward, um, which is just such a heartbreaking statistic. And in many, many, many other cases, the women chose to leave on their own volition because they didn't want to work in the same space as the person that had harassed them. Uh, They were no longer comfortable coming to work. They, you know, in most of the cases, it said, you know, the victim had no choice but to leave. Um, And that is, you know, and and that kind of gets to the heart of this series, right? These are just regular people who often don't have the privilege to go without work. They need these jobs. It's not like they have other things to fall back on. So, So leaving a job because of this is really difficult. And in this particular case, uh, the male supervisor you mentioned was transferred. Um, what did the judicial branch say about how it was handled uh, when you contacted them? So they, uh, be- so she ended up suing the state of Connecticut in federal court, and that case was just settled, um, and the settlement was just released last week. So they actually haven't offered any sort of comment on why they responded the way they did because it was tied up. Uh, in a federal lawsuit. So I'm, I'm hoping to hear back on that soon. <laughs> uh, there was another uh, uh, case that you reported on, uh, a woman, I believe we're just using her first name, Laura, mm-hmm, uh, who Laura. worked at uh, Northwestern Mutual. What happened to her? So she was at a conference um, with one of her, I believe he was a, a colleague, not necessarily a superior. And he, um, there, there was like a happy hour type of thing after one day after the conference, and he ended up um, sexually assaulting her when she tried to help him get back to his room uh, late one night. And she kind of suppressed that and, you know, went back home and kind of ignored it. And then when she went into her office the following Monday, he was there and it all came flooding back to her. And she was like, I have to complain because um, this was so traumatic. Mm. Yeah. You said that she suppressed it. Uh, you know, oftentimes we hear when someone um, um, deals with harassment or or a sexual assault that they feel like it's their fault. Was that something that that Laura that went through her mind? Um, yeah, I think she. You know, they had been intimate once before um, by choice, and, but she did not want to do it again. And if like there is, just because you did it once doesn't mean you have to do it again. And so. I think a lot of women go through that, you know, what could I have done differently? Um, And another case, you know, a woman who worked in a janitorial position 
was let go and she was you know she felt really bad about herself because she was like this is a job that anyone could do and i'm getting fired from it Um, and of course she was getting fired because she complained about harassment not because she wasn't good at the job so in the instance of of laura this um male colleague uh, he broke terms of of uh, the rules spelled out by this private company but what happened to him i believe he still works there (laughs) he you know and that is the case in so many of these cases of harassment. The male um, or, you know, sometimes the harassment is carried out by a woman. It's not always men that are harassing. Um, but the harasser typically remains in their position. Um, they are not usually the one transferred. That's usually offered to the victim, which, you know, could hurt their career. Um, and it's just more traumatic that way. And uh, I think that the... In only two of the 100 cases, the man was terminated. Um, and in just a handful more, they were transferred or had some other sort of repercussion. How did what happened to Laura also show that, uh, again, we're going to be talking about Time's Up, this new state law that just went into effect this month. But prior to that, uh, depending on where you worked and how your uh, company, uh, maybe they had HR or not, that the, the way these uh, situations are handled, they vary across the board. Yeah, they they do vary across the board. And, you know, one of the things that is really great about this new law is that it extends training to most, almost every single person that works in Connecticut, whereas previously it was limited to supervisors and managers um, at companies, I think, of like 15 people or more. And now it's every employee, every supervisor at companies of three people or more. So that's effectively training every person in Connecticut about what they should do if they're harassed, what is appropriate workplace behavior. Um, And so the idea is to prevent people like Laura from having to go through this um, and not knowing what to do. As you detail in the story, it was Laura's supervisor that tried to handle the situation, not HR? Yeah, yeah. That's another thing is that was so weird about that case. Um, And she essentially was forced to confront her harasser and she kind of went through this really bizarre series of events and ended up, I believe um, that was the case where she filed um, the CHRO complaint on her own. And then, you know, it was just a very complicated series of events that followed from there. Again, Caitlin Kresselt is in the studio with me, political reporter for Hearst Connecticut Media, uh, one of the reporters on this uh, five-part series looking into workplace harassment and abuse across Connecticut. You can join our conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter uh, at Where We Live. Uh, something you said earlier that when we look across all of these industries in Connecticut, uh, in f- the food hospitality uh, sector, you see a lot more of these complaints. Uh, one of the uh, people that you profiled was uh, Jasmine Bass, who worked at a New Haven KFC. What happened to her? She had worked at the New Haven KFC for only about a month when her she had two supervisors, a man and a woman. Um, they sent her a sex tape and, you know, essentially said something along the lines of, you know, in case you want to join us so you know what's going to happen. Um, and Emily, my colleague, reviewed the tape. Um, she's seen it and it is true. Um, and so then she just she felt so uncomfortable going to work. She tried to complain. And what happened to her is that she was just left off the schedule there, which is another form of retaliation. You know, you're not necessarily fired, but your shifts are cut, uh, which prevents you from earning a paycheck. And um, it just kind of spirals from there.
What else about the culture from your reporting uh, did you um, begin to understand in terms of when we look at the restaurant and hospitality sector, is there a belief that there will always be other people that are willing to take this job, oftentimes minimum wage? So if someone complains, uh, they they get canned. Yeah, I think that is part of the problem as well. There are, there are always people willing to do that kind of work because even though it is minimum wage, in some places it can be lucrative. And um, in the places that it's not lucrative, it's a job that a lot of low-income people just – they need and it's easy to get. Um, but it's not that easy to keep. And you know, part of the problem in the restaurant industry is it's not just coworkers, it's also customers. Um, there's this kind of idea that the customer is always right and um, – their women especially are encouraged in a lot of restaurants to wear more revealing clothing to increase their tips um, and that kind of perpetuates this perpetuates this culture of harassment in the restaurant and hospitality industry. Uh, before we head to break, I just wanted to stress again, these were 100 uh, complaints that you and your colleagues reviewed because they had gotten to the level where they were reported to the state agency, again, the Connecticut Commission on Human Rights and Opportunities. Uh, but do you feel uh, from your reporting that people are aware that this is the process, that there's a state agency that can help? Uh, no. <laughs> um, and I would say, too, you know, we reviewed 100 complaints and we know that this is just the tip of the iceberg because these complaints are ones where someone did know the next step after they were dissatisfied with their employer response. And that's um, typically when a complaint would elevate to the CHRO. You know, if you complain and then are satisfied with the response by your employer, you wouldn't um, complain to CHRO and then we wouldn't know about that. And then on top of that, Um, I even know personally, you know, in my personal life, people who have been harassed at work um, and went through the human resources process and were dissatisfied with it and then thought that that was just the end and that there was nothing that they could do. Um, And so, again, that is the hope of this Time's Up law is that everyone in the state will be trained so that if you are dissatisfied, you do know where to turn. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest today, Caitlin Crassel, political reporter for Hearst Connecticut Media. As we talk about an important series, Caitlin and her colleagues uh, reported on, including Emily Munson, about workplace sexual harassment and abuse in our state. After the break, we'll be joined by, the again, the executive director of the state agency that investigates discrimination. And we want to hear from you. Have you experienced harassment in the workplace? Did you know where to turn? Join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. How pervasive is workplace sexual harassment and abuse in our state? Uh, Hearst Connecticut Media Series finds it's a problem across many industries in Connecticut. The series also finds that people who reported the harassers experienced retaliation in 52% of the cases filed with the state agency tasked with investigating discrimination complaints. That state agency, again, is the Connecticut Commission on Human Rights and Opportunities. Its executive director joins 
joins us now in studio, uh, Tanya Hughes. Welcome to the show, Tanya. Thank you. I should also mention Caitlin Kressel is still here with us, political reporter for Hearst Connecticut Media, uh, one of the reporters on this uh, five-part series about workplace harassment and abuse. Uh, so, Tanya, I, I had asked before the break uh, to Caitlin if, if a lot of people know about CHRO and uh, your responsibilities. So, so tell us how long you've been at the agency and for state residents, uh, what you're task doing. Okay. I am currently the executive director, but I started with CHRO 25 years ago as a staff attorney, and I was promoted within to regional manager. I served in that role for about 16 years, and I've been executive director now six years. And my role is really to oversee the entire agency, but our agency is tasked with eliminating discrimination in the state of Connecticut through Um, enforcement of employment, uh, housing, public accommodation or credit types of complaints, as well as uh, overviewing our affirmative action programs in the state of Connecticut and monitoring our state set-aside program. Um, So uh, sexual harassment comes into play with respect to our processing of investigations of complaints. That sounds like a big job. How big is your staff? We have a very small staff with a very large uh, responsibility. Uh, We currently have about 72 employees on staff with four regional offices. We have our central office which encompasses our legal department, um, our executive office, our affirmative action unit, and our contract compliance and housing divisions. And then we have the four regional offices in Bridgeport, Waterbury, um, Norwich, and then in the capital region as well Mm -hmm. here in Hartford. Uh, For someone who's listening now who may be experiencing uh, harassment in the workplace, you know, what is the process that he or she uh, should uh, start? And then how do you get involved, Tanya? Well, typically, I don't personally get involved at this level unless the complaint has gone through every single stage of the complaint and they've exhausted all of the internal appeals. But, uh, Basically, a complainant can call any of our regional offices or they can call an 800 number and uh, they'll be provided with the information to contact someone and come in and actually sit down with an intake specialist who will assist them with filing a complaint. Uh, The complaint would have to be filed um, within a statutory time period and so This new uh, sexual harassment uh, development is enhancing our ability to expand the timeframes for all uh, discrimination complaints. That's the Time's Up uh, law that just went into effect. Correct. So um, depending on when someone files a complaint, there's a longer period of time to investigate that? Or explain that for us. Correct. So as of October 1st, if, if you are alleging that an incident occurred after October 1st of 2019, then you will have 300 days to file a complaint. Previously, or up until October 1, you only have 180 days. So if the incident occurred September 30th, you still only have 180 days. Mm -hmm. But if it occurred after October 1, you now have 300 days. Um, And that's important because oftentimes people are fearful to come forward 
Uh, they're very hesitant. They need to speak to family members, et cetera, and build up their confidence to uh, come forward because oftentimes people aren't believed. They don't think they have enough evidence. And so uh, we do quite a bit of outreach um, on our regional levels as well as we have our deputy director, Cheryl Sharp, who heads a division of our business training institute. And so we're w- willing to go out to businesses uh, schools, all types of agencies, and tailor any type of training. So just to clarify for someone listening, if they are being harassed in the workplace, their first step is to contact their HR person within the particular employer, the, the company that they work for. If that isn't resolved, then they can file a complaint with the state CHRO? Correct. Um, if, if they feel like they're being harassed, the first thing they should do is to ask the harasser to stop. Um, then they should probably look over the company policies, if any exist, or speak with their supervisor or manager. Um, if they have a union, they can go to their union representative. But they certainly um, are, are welcome to file a complaint with CHRO. I guess the, the tricky part is if someone is being harassed by their supervisor or manager, what do they do then, Tanya? Well, um, again, they can document it. They can um ask the manager to stop. Uh, We're so grateful for this new uh, law because it requires all employees to be provided information about what the law is and what is prohibited. And so this way, now they're armed with that information and they can recognize it when it happens. Um, Previously, people would be exposed to certain types of behavior. You know, people talk about sex in the office or either there may be posters of people scantily dressed or something like that, and they may not be aware that that's something that's prohibited. So this law now enables them to know that it's prohibited and they can speak up and speak out about it. And um, our process is free. And so, you know, anyone can file a complaint as long as, you know, they work for an employer that has at least three employees on staff. Tanya Hughes is with us, Executive Director of the Connecticut Commission on Human Rights and Opportunities. Uh, Also in studio, Caitlin Crassell, a political reporter for Hearst Connecticut Media. You can join our conversation, especially if you have a question about this new uh, state law. We're going to talk more about uh, the requirements in that law coming up at the number 888-720-9677. Also, if you've experienced sexual harassment, uh, you know, did you know where to turn? You can join us as well. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Caitlin, we heard uh, Tanya Hughes mentioned that uh, one of the requirements in this new law is uh, giving uh, victims, so to speak, more time after uh, an incident happens to uh, file a complaint and work through that process. But uh, were there instances where uh, before it got expanded from 180 days to 300 where you talked to women uh, who, were unfortunately, they came forward too late? I didn't speak uh, directly to any women who came forward too late, but we do know um, from reading through the complaints that there were at least a couple of cases that had to be dismissed um, because they were filed after the deadline um, to submit them. And and one of the cases that we wrote about, the woman ended up filing her complaint twice, um, the first time on her own and then the second time with the help of an attorney. And that second time she filed it, I think, just two days before the deadline. Um, and then there's there's another deadline that mm-hmm. isn't really talked about. But in that particular case, you know, when she filed her first complaint and by herself without an attorney, she withdrew it. 
um, to go through the legal system. And she didn't know when she did that, it started the clock on a 90-day timeline to file a case in in court. Um, So there are multiple sets of timelines that victims have to be aware of that I think in many cases they probably aren't. Uh, Tanya Hughes, again, the executive director of the Connecticut Commission on Human Rights and Opportunities, CHRO. Uh, We're talking about this, uh, especially after uh, the Me Too movement and uh, the reporting that Hearst Connecticut uh, Media did that found that it looked like a number of the complaints that were filed actually grew substantially um, after the Me Too movement. Do you see that as, uh, you know, you can draw a parallel with the fact there's a lot of attention on what is and is not acceptable in the workplace? Absolutely. Um, Just from the time the Me Too movement started, we started getting um, a large number of inquiries and calls into our office. Not all were substantiated into actual complaints, but I even personally received calls from, there was one elderly woman who had been retired for over 10 years, but she, she spoke to me for over an hour at length with you know, tears through tears, you know, just relating her experience in the workplace and 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 how it resonated with her regarding why her, why was she the one that was targeted? You know, she didn't think she had done anything to encourage that behavior. She was a single mother, um, newly divorced. She just needed her job to support her family. And someone just harassed her daily in the hallways, and she just felt like she couldn't complain about it because it was someone in a supervisory capacity. So um, even since... The article that uh, Caitlin and Emily wrote, I've received personal calls at home, um, calls in the office. We've received over close to 4,000 registrations to our online training um, since October 1. It's just getting a lot of attention. And so we're so happy that, you know, the attention is giving people, you know, the the um, confidence to come forward with their complaints. Uh, you can join our conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Uh, Brian's calling from Middlefield. Brian, you're on the show. Hi, thank you. I have a question for your guest. I, I understand that, that it is rather difficult to successfully file a claim and, and actually to get it into the court system. I wonder if your guest could tell us about what percentage of complaints that go into their office successfully make it through and are deemed viable claims in the court system and maybe talk a bit about what happens to those claims after they they leave her office. Uh, Thank you, Brian. Tanya Hughes. I personally don't follow the complaints after they leave our office. Um, We have our complaints that go through our regional level, um, and then I would say probably 30% of those go forward. um, our found cause, per- perhaps, and then of those that are found cause, they go to our public hearing stage, and then it's a whole new investigative process. Um, so I don't follow the cases into the court level, so I wouldn't have the percentages on hand. Mm-hmm. I am curious, when we hear that a case, there is uh, a settlement reached, what does that mean? Does that mean that the employer has to show that they're uh, doing better with training? Because in one instance that uh, we were talking earlier with Caitlin, uh, someone, there was definitely evidence this person was uh, harassed for many years, and uh, the person accused ended up just getting transferred and still has a job. Right, and that's part of uh, the new laws 
realize that, you know, the person that has been victimized will not be the one that has to make the changes. Um, other types of remedies available would be back pay if they lost any type of um, pay as, as a result of it. Uh, Caitlin had mentioned that some people were terminated. Maybe they get reinstated and or they get front pay to cover them until they find another job. Um, they may get attorney's fees or costs. They may there could be cease and desist, desist orders. Um, there could be emotional distress damages. But we also try to make the person whole and eliminate the the circumstances that existed. So policies being put into place would certainly be part of the remedy. Uh, this new state law, again, October 1st, the Time's Up Act requiring uh, several things that we've discussed, uh, some of them. What are some other parts of this law that are important to stress, Tanya? Okay. Um, it's important to know that uh, now the law is available to employers with three or more employees. Previously, it was only available required to provide training to employ to the supervisory personnel only and only in those employers of 50 or more employees. So now they're required to provide information to all employees. They're provide required to post it in the workplace. They're required to pro provide training um, to all employees, and uh, that must be within six months of their start date. Um, and then they must also provide periodic supplemental training, uh, not less than every 10 years. And then outside of workplace harassment, there is a, a part that r relates to the statute of limitations for uh, sexual assault cases. Tanya? Yes. Uh, Increasing the statute limitations for rape cases? Correct. Um, I haven't followed that part because that's the criminal aspect and we don't cover that. But yes, that's correct. Caitlin uh, Kressel, uh, remind us, this is not the first time, again, this time's up, uh, was before the state legislature. Can you remind us what some of the concerns were about this new law? I know the, the Business and Industry Association, CBIA, uh, had some concerns as well as uh, black and Hispanic lawmakers. Yeah, there were concerns. Um, I, one direction that maybe it didn't even do enough, um, even though it does pretty broadly expand, expand the state's uh, workplace discrimination laws um, far more than any time in the past 10 years at least. Um, and then there were concerns that it was overstepping um, as well. Um, so you saw that on both sides of it. Tanya, do you think that this law um, will have the effect that lawmakers intend? Uh, because uh, we all know that uh, while there is a now uh, mandated uh, sexual harassment training uh, for most employ employers in the state of Connecticut, you know, some people might shrug their shoulders and say, well, you know, What's wrong if we, I make this kind of joke? Or is this really harassment? Does this, uh, uh, is this rise to a, a, to a cause for concern that someone should be either transferred or terminated because uh, of something that they say? Right. And that's why this, this new law and this new attention is so important because those are types of incidents that create what we call a hostile work environment. And so when it's happening on a constant and daily basis, then it's intolerable and it and it should not exist. And so by requiring employers to make certain that all employees know that this is not acceptable, most times it will also put um, 
attention and emphasis on the employer to create those types of policies um, and procedures in their workplace that are standard and then make certain that they're consistently applied. That's usually the problem is that they may have the policies, but everyone doesn't know that they exist or they're not consistently applied. Uh, And so now they're required not only to have these policies in place, but to also reinforce them and reinforce the training on a regular basis. Uh, I mentioned I'd asked you earlier about staffing levels. Uh, You said even since this uh, five-part series came out from Hearst Connecticut Media, you're getting calls and people are reaching out to you because of situations they've experienced. Do you have enough staff uh, to get to to follow up with these We never have enough staff. We were grateful, though, that we were able to get uh, a couple of new positions out of this. And so we will be hiring a a new attorney and a new uh, investigator uh, very soon to cover um, the additional duties and responsibilities that will come. We're already seeing that have come with this this task. Uh, We were already uh, required to put up the online training, uh, two-hour training, and that was to be provided at no cost to employers and employees, and so we successfully were able to get that up in time, and we've had, uh, as of this morning, 3,877 hits to the training. Uh, Caitlin Crassold, again, with Hearst Connecticut Media. Uh, you've spoken, uh, in your colleagues as well, uh, to uh, many uh, people the last few months looking at this uh, work issue of workplace sexual harassment uh, and abuse. Uh, when they were able to take it to the state CHRO, uh, you know, what, were, what was their reaction to how the process unfolded? Any gaps that exist that they told you about? Um, there was a mix of people. Some people were very satisfied with that process and others, um, you know, were discouraged by the length of time that it took um, and wanted more of a, a legal route, um, went through the court system. So it really just depended um, on what their personal situation was and uh, what their employer response was. And then um, the the staffing is a challenge, I know, with the CHRO. So um, that time frame for them. Uh, before we, uh, we we go to break, uh, Tanya, uh, for listeners who want to learn more about uh, or just to contact you if they have an issue, where can they go? Is there a phone number you can give us? Absolutely. Uh, they can contact us at 860-541-3400. And if they listen to the prompts, there's a special designation for sexual harassment complaints that we put up recently. Um, they also can go to our website at www.ct.gov slash and we have all of the information posted up there as well. And Caitlin, uh, your uh, takeaways uh, from uh, reporting on this series and from what you've heard since it's been published. Uh, I have received emails from people since this has been published saying, you know, thank you for writing this. This happened to me too. And I, I, you know, me too. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I I didn't know where to turn. Um, And so that is encouraging. The, The hope is that you know, with all of our stories, we did run um, kind of some supplemental information boxes on how the process works and what resources are available. Um, and since the Me Too movement has started, things like the Times Up Legal Defense Fund has started, which helps low-income women um, and victims of sexual harassment access attorneys. Um, so, you know, I think we've just heard the most remarkable stories, and the fact that these people continue to work um, is 
Good. <laughs> uh, several, uh, I guess a couple years ago, uh, where we live, uh, we did a show about sexual harassment uh, that uh, media uh, professionals, specifically women, face uh, in our industry, uh, whether it's people we're interviewing or uh, male managers. And so uh, and we're seeing that play out now with uh, NBC and how they've handled the, the Matt Lauer uh, allegations. So again, uh, this, uh, this uh, is uh, something that all industries uh, right. face. And so we yep. will uh, be f- uh, continuing to follow follow this issue. And we really thank you, Caitlin Crassalt, you and Emily Munson, as well as Hearst Connecticut Media for doing this series and and for coming on the show today. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. Also, Tanya Hughes, Executive Director of the Connecticut Commission on Human Rights and Opportunities. Tanya, thanks. Thanks for having me. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we're going to shift our focus to the latest measles case reported in Connecticut. This comes as lawmakers debate certain vaccination exemptions for public school students. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, uh, the new tax law that went into effect in 2017 actually created a, a new initiative called the Opportunity Zones Program. It's to spur investment in the nation's most distressed communities. We're going to talk more about that program on Where We Live tomorrow, looking at uh, 72 Opportunity Zones here in Connecticut and what's being done to attract investors to those regions. That's tomorrow. Now, Today, we're just going to shift our focus now away from workplace sexual harassment to measles. That's because the number of measles cases continues to grow in the U.S. This month, there have been more than 1,200 cases in 31 states, including Connecticut. The CDC says it's the greatest number of measles cases since 1992. Uh, Joining me now in studio is Connecticut Public's health reporter, Nicole Leonard, with an update just one week after Connecticut released vaccination data about public school students. Nicole, welcome back. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Lucy. So not good news. We now know there's a fourth confirmed case of measles in Connecticut. What can you tell us? Yeah, it's not good news. Um, The uh, Department of Public Health just announced last week that there was um, a new case of measles. So the other three were earlier this year. And so now we just saw one. um, And it occurred in Fairfield County. And the thing with this case is is the first case this year among a school-age child. So the three previous cases were in adults. Um, So this is the first first case in a child. Um, they said that this child got in early October, um, but we don't know any other details. We don't know where um, the child goes to school or, or, you know, if it's a boy or a girl. Um, they're keeping those details um, for now. If I were uh, a parent of a school student in Fair- Fairfield County, I'd be really distressed hearing about this. Uh, was the child infectious while in the classroom? Yes. Well, what we do know, the, the big thing that is good to know is that they did a public health investigation and they did determine that the child was not infectious while at school. So that's good news. Um, and, and that should uh, help lessen the worries of parents who uh, may have a child in school in Fairfield County. We've heard a lot about uh, measles outbreaks, especially uh, near uh, in New York uh, State as well as in Oregon. You know, tell us again, for many of us who aren't seeing measles these days, that's a good thing. But what does this disease do? How does it manifest? 
Yeah, I mean, a lot of people haven't seen measles because actually back in 2000, it was um, announced that it had been eliminated in the United States. It had been eradicated. Um, since then, though, the last couple of years, we've seen quite a number of cases. And like you just mentioned, over 1,200 um, this year. Measles is really trademarked by this reddish, brownish rash that um, usually typically starts at the hairline and moves down the body. And that's kind of the trademark of measles. But it's usually before you see a rash, sometimes a lot of people get fever, runny nose, watery eyes. So a lot of symptoms that mimic a cold or the flu. Um, but it is followed by that rash. And it's a very distinctive rash. Um, and, and you and it, and it is very contagious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, you mentioned that in 2000, it was eradicated from this country. That's because of a vaccine, uh, that vaccine being developed uh, in the 60s. You spoke to Matthew Carter, who's a epidemiologist with the State Department of Public Health. Uh, let's hear what he told you. There were three to four million people in the United States infected every year before the vaccine became available in 1963. And among those who were reported, there were 400 to 500 people who died. Mm. Uh, so that's, uh, you know, again, really startling to hear how it was a, a real issue uh, before the vaccine. Uh, he mentioned that there are cases where people can die from measles. Yeah. So what you just heard from him, about 400, 500 people every year died before the vaccine really became widespread. Um, but the, you know, death still is a rare complication, um, I would say, among measles cases. More of the common ones are people did survive, but some of the people that did get measles that did survive, they suffered things like pneumonia or um, encephalitis, which is swelling of the brain, which can lead to actually some children could become deaf that way after surviving measles. So there are some serious um, risks and complications for having measles. It's it's not just, you know, like having a cold and then getting over it. It can be very serious. Nicole Leonard's with me in studio, health reporter for Connecticut Public, as we learn more about this fourth confirmed case of measles in Connecticut. Uh, again, this is the first time uh, this year uh, this case is reported in a child. The other three were adults, Nicole. Where were they in the state? Yeah, the uh, three adults earlier this year were in New Haven County. Um, two of them got diagnosed. They they knew each other um, in January. And the last case that Connecticut saw was in, I believe, March in a person that uh, had recently visited Brooklyn, New York, mm-hmm. uh, around the time that that area was having a major outbreak of measles in community. So they, uh, Department of Public Health, determined that that person had gotten measles from uh, from that area. You've actually been spending a lot of your time and your beat talking about vaccinations because of this debate about the state releasing school by school information. That actually just happened a week ago. Uh, what did we learn from that information, Nicole? What we learned, the good, the good news is we learned that most schools and most children in Connecticut are vaccinated for most diseases, including measles, mumps, and rubella, the MMR vaccine. Um, so that's good news. The The issue is um, looking at the data that was released last week. It was for the 2018-2019 school year. And when comparing it to just one year school year before, they found that there are more schools now dropping below this nine 
95% vaccinated level. So there are more schools in Connecticut, there were more schools in Connecticut last year who didn't have uh, 95% of their children vaccinated for Mm -hmm. things like measles, mumps, and rubella. That percentage is important because it relates to herd immunity. What do health officials tell us about that? So the CDC says that schools and communities should have uh, 95% of its people in that community or school vaccinated in order to achieve herd immunity. So that's a level of protection that significantly reduces the risk of disease outbreak in that community or school. And you got to remember that um, the for the percentage of people who aren't vaccinated, that could be because they are medically compromised. They may not be able to get vaccines. Um, the elderly are still more at risk. Pregnant women are still at more at risk. And young babies, um, they don't actually get Uh, they can't get the MMR vaccine until they're over a year old. So they're completely at risk for getting something and they are not eligible to get the vaccine yet. Uh, State public health officials are also concerned, including some lawmakers, because this data is showing that uh, more schools are falling below that 95 percent vaccination threshold that you mentioned, 134 schools. And these officials are tying that to the rising number of parents that are opting for religious exemptions to these mandatory vaccines. So yeah. what, what's the what's going to happen in the next few months with uh, lawmakers coming back to session? Will this be coming up? That This will definitely be coming up. I can't say exactly what mm-hmm. will happen, um, but we just have seen in the last several weeks and uh, months uh, going back that um, people like Governor Ned Lamont, um, now Commissioner, uh, DPH Commissioner Renee Coleman-Mitchell, uh, including uh, a lot fairly large number of Democratic legislators do want to and support the idea of eliminating the religious uh exemption to mandatory vaccines, which would only leave a medical exemption. And those are particularly, um, those only occur in specific circumstances. Children usually have doctors sign off on things to say that they cannot get these uh, vaccinations. So um, so we would be following in the footsteps if it happened. Um, other states that have done Nearby states, New York and Maine, have already done this, eliminated their non-medical Uh, exemptions. That call to eliminate religious exemptions uh, does not please all Connecticut residents. Uh, Some parents uh, not happy with this. What are their concerns uh, if this is rolled back? Yeah, a a lot of uh, there's a group I, I shouldn't say, you know, they um, there are groups of parents who are against mandatory vaccination. So um, some of them are against all vaccinations. Some of them are partially they just don't want to have to mandatorily do it. Um, so they are pretty upset. They've been very outspoken um, against uh, eliminating something like religious vaccination. Some people are worried that if that exemption was eliminated, that their their child would not be able to go to public school anymore um, and that they would have to figure out different ways to get their children education. So those are some of the concerns among that group. They have been very vocal, um, but we'll see how this plays out during the next legislative session. Nicole Leonard is a Connecticut Public's ACE health reporter who often comes on our show. We thank you again for that update, Nicole. Yeah, thanks for having me. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Thanks to Kevin Morrison on the phones. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As always, thanks for listening.